You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel and former Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker joined the Post to discuss the Biden administration, its agenda, and the importance of a peaceful transition of power. Let's listen. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor-at-large at The Post, and I'm very pleased to be kicking off our new government series today with two terrific guests who've been there before. Later in the program, we'll hear from former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel, but first, Penny Pritzker, Secretary of Commerce under Barack Obama, and an advisor to the Biden transition campaign, Biden transition joins us this morning. Thank you for being here, Secretary Pritzker. Mike, I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and we can start with what we all have learned overnight in this morning, the results from Georgia, though they're not complete. Tell me what think of them and what it means for President-elect Biden. Well, first of all, uh, what we've learned is, is that we still have a country that is very divided, and this race was really close. But assuming that uh, both Democrats win in Georgia, obviously one is race has been called and the other is still in the balance, but is looking good. Um, it means that you know the Democrats could take control of the Senate, which would really help with the Biden agenda. The Biden agenda being very focused on fundamentals, which is how do we deal with the virus and getting the virus under control? How do we get relief for working families and small businesses? And ultimately, we've got to build back our economy better and more and in a more inclusive way. The other thing it means, you know, on a more logistical standpoint is, is that if the Democrats are in control of the Senate, it will determine kind of the agenda of the Senate, uh, what, where the Senate focuses, what are the committee hearings about. Uh, it'll also uh, affect probably budgets, judges. It'll probably make it easier for the nominees that the president-elect and vice president-elect have proffered to get through that process um, because Chuck Schumer will control the floor, if you will. But fundamentally, we have to keep in mind that the American people need the Senate to rise to the challenges that we're facing as a country. So those challenges have not gone away. They're right in front of us. And the American people are demanding attention. You know, uh, you were a relatively early supporter of Joe Biden, uh, and you worked on the transition, particularly on economic policy and liaison with business groups. I'm wondering, could you give us a little more granular sense build back better means? What specifically would change if we built back better? Well, the Build Back Better plan is really a fundamental uh, focus, first of all, on we have to address the virus because our economy, getting parts of our economy going again depends upon us uh, getting the virus under control, which obviously means we need to get folks vaccinated, and that's a high, high, high priority. The second part of it is uh, really investing in people and in small businesses to make sure that the, that's where a huge portion of the job loss, the continued job loss is, to make sure that we can bring those good jobs back. And then it's about fundamentally investing in things like infrastructure, an enormous opportunity, I think, for uh, Congress to address our infrastructure spend, both our physical infrastructure as well as our 
uh, uh, digital infrastructure to make to keep America competitive as well as it will be good for job creation in the country. And I think that's a bipartisan opportunity uh, for Congress. Um, the Build Back Better plan also focuses on investing in people, making sure that we're really giving an opportunity for our workforce to have the skills that they need to be able to compete in the 21st century. And then there's a focus on two things, investing in R&D, R&D so that the United States is globally competitive and remains a leadership economy, which is extremely important. And second is investing in clean energy. Obviously, we need an infrastructure that is um, climate friendly, but also we need to lead in clean energy technologies. And so the Build Back Better plan finally also addresses um, racial inequality and inequality of opportunity. And that's an extremely important thing as we've seen, you know, we just do not have equal access and equal opportunity for everyone in this country to um, good jobs and, and uh, education and healthcare. And we need to address that. You know, you're right. The pandemic has revealed a split in the economy uh, that uh, many people didn't see before, though it had been there a long time. The stock market rebounded, which made the rich richer. And yet we had people standing in food lines that seemed to just keep growing. Uh, what will Biden do to change that imbalance? Well, I think you'll see, um, particularly if the outcome is as um, uh, we're hoping in terms of Georgia, that you'll probably see further stimulus. There needs to be, and there's been a lot of conversation, further stimulus, particularly geared towards uh, uh, the worker and geared towards small businesses. And also, I think you'll see infrastructure spending occur, which is extremely important. You know, look, we have to, ADP came out today and said there were 123,000 jobs lost uh, in December. That's the first time we've actually had more job loss since April. That's really a bad sign, which means we have a lot of work to do. And then obviously COVID is just continuing to ravage our communities and our country. We had 3,700 deaths yesterday. It's tragic. And that is something that Joe Biden is absolutely focused on, making sure that we as a country take the steps that we need to, whether it's wearing masks, taking the individual precautions that we need to take, but also making sure that we get the virus under control so that we can get the economy back rolling. Can you talk a little bit before we go into the relationship with Congress, can you talk a little bit more about how you assess, um, and I know your brother is the governor of Illinois, uh, how you assess the rollout of the vaccination uh, program at this point? Is it going well? Are we behind? What do you make of the progress and from where you sit? Well, from where I sit, first of all, thank God for science. And we should all respect our scientists. They have done a miraculous job of producing vaccines that are have are very efficacious. And so now the question is, how do we get those vaccines out? And not just my brother, I've heard from a number of governors around the country how frustrated they are that they get promised, let's say 10,000 vaccines and 5,000, and they organize to make sure there are people there to you know get vaccinated, and then they receive 5,000 vaccines. That can't be, this needs to be 
where it's seamless, where the information is transparent, where it's reliable. And I believe that the team that Joe Biden has put together, led by Jeff Zients and others, will be able to, you know, get this process and and get the, um, if you will, supply chain of vaccines uh, functioning in a way that uh, delivers what has been promised by uh, our federal government. It's an enormous opportunity for Joe Biden to show that government can work and should work for the American people. So I think there's um, a lot better uh, effort needs to happen. And I have a lot of confidence in the team that uh, President-elect Biden has put together. Depending on how today and tomorrow shake out in Georgia, it, it looks like President-elect Biden will be inheriting the most closely divided Congress in at least a generation, maybe longer. And of course, today, later today, some 100 House members and a dozen or more senators are going to object to uh, certain, some of the Electoral College uh, certifications that have come in from the states. Um, uh, Biden is known as a bridge builder, but this looks like a very long bridge he has to build. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? How do, how, what do you think his first steps in that uh, department are going to be? Well, let me begin by saying I have the utmost confidence that Joe Biden is a bridge builder and that he will use every tool in his toolkit to create, uh, uh, to bring the America together and to work with Congress. And he understands that he was elected by a country that has been very divided. And he understands, he and the team, the task ahead of them. I think the way they will address this is to work to find common ground. And I think there is common ground in terms of the need, as I said, for more stimulus. I think there is common ground for the need for infrastructure spending. I predict, and I don't know, because I'm not uh, in that in the leadership position, but I predict that, that uh, by, uh, President-elect Biden and his team will first focus on places of common uh, desire so that they can prove that uh, Congress can work with the White House. And, you know, look, he's a schooled hand at working uh, with Congress. He's done it both in as a senator and then as vice president. He was always the go-to guy uh, for the Obama administration when it came to working with Congress. So I just think this is um, this is a natural uh, endeavor for him. I'm not saying it's easy. I, it's that would be silly to say. But the political theater that's going on around his election, I think, is irresponsible and self-interested. Um, but I, I really applaud uh, uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris for taking the high road, for looking on and caring about the future of the country and not uh, uh, engaging in uh, the political theater that I think will go on uh, in Congress over the next couple of days. Uh, you know, Secretary Pritzker, the divide isn't just among Republicans. There are tensions inside the Democratic Party between its centrist wing and its progressive wing. Um, I, I'm thinking that the Biden Department of Bridge Building is going to be very busy. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, look, the country has, we have a, a big spectrum of people uh, and, and beliefs and as represented in the House and in the Senate and in both parties. That's to be expected. 
And so it does mean, look, a democracy requires really taking into account the breadth of uh, opinions and desires and trying to find a place of common ground. And I think that Venn diagram, there is a significant overlap at this moment. There's a real recognition that the country needs to move forward and address the fundamentals, address the, the threat of this virus, get America vaccinated, get our economy going. Um, you know, create relief for uh, working Americans and for small businesses. I think that, you you know, uh, people understand that regardless of where they fall on the spectrum. And so it's going to be uh, require people coming together to fundamentally address the needs of Americans. And we have Americans who are hurting. You know, you mentioned climate change. Can you talk a little bit about how Biden plans to address that? You know, he's named a, a number of different people to uh, positions related to climate. Um, what do you suspect their uh, first or most important steps in 2021 are going to be? Well, I think the first thing to do is to understand the facts and the reality. And I don't think uh, the current administration, I know, has not been willing to really make sure that everyone's working off of the same set of fundamentals. We have a problem. We have a, I know from my time as Secretary of Commerce, Commerce, part of the Commerce Department is NOAA. We have a significant, over 100, 150 million Americans who are at threat of rising sea levels. This is a real issue that, because of climate change, this is a real issue that has to be addressed and has to be taken seriously. And there's no reason that the United States can't be a leader in addressing the climate crisis facing our planet. We have technologies, we have the will. I see it from the private sector, uh, which is companies are embracing uh, climate sensitive moves and you know, saying and committing to being carbon neutral. We need our federal government to step up and, and be right there with us and make sure that the rules and the regulations are uh, uniform across our country and not led just by one state or another state. So there's an enormous opportunity for the Biden administration to play a real leadership role where, frankly, I think over the last several years, the private sector and nonprofits have had to play a leadership role in this, places like the state of California have had to be play a leadership role because we haven't had that kind of federal uh, leadership. There's also the role the, uh, in terms of climate globally. If you think about things like our oceans, which I mentioned, that's a global issue uh, that where we need as a country to be working with other countries how to best uh, 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 protect our oceans uh, so that we don't face the kind of uh, potential crises that are, are threatening our shorelines, if you will, and threatening the well-being of our oceans, let alone our atmosphere. So there's, there's an enormous role to be played. And I think the fact that uh, 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 President-elect Biden has uh, put in place a AAA team led by uh, uh, former Secretary Kerry, led by uh, Gina, led by others who are going to play a role across um, the administration, I think is a statement about how seriously and how important climate is um, in to this administration. I mean, one of the things that I've been impressed by is 
uh, of President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris have been really clear about their priorities. They've said there are four major priorities for their administration. First is addressing the virus. The second is addressing our, our economy. The third is addressing climate. And the fourth is addressing racial injustice and uh, equal opportunity. And I think those are four pillars that Americans can get excited about and rally around, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on or where you fall in the political spectrum. These are all important issues for every American. And I think being so clear about those as priorities is really going to help set the stage for this administration as they take over in a very challenging time. You, know, you mentioned uh, an additional stimulus uh, possibility uh, a few moments ago. Congress just okayed uh, nearly $900 billion in stimulus. That puts nearly a trillion dollars of liquidity uh, into the economy uh, this year. That's a, no doubt a, a boost for the any incoming president. But you seem to suggest that there might be additional stimulus coming. Uh, what makes you uh, relatively optimistic about that? Well, look, I think that we need, you know, I think that Congress needs to take whatever steps is necessary in order to get our country back on track from an economic standpoint and make sure that Americans are back at work. We still have 10 million plus Americans who are out of work, who are working prior to the pandemic. So, you know, our, our service economy has really been hit hard and the people, the good people who work in that industry have been really hurt. And so we need to do our part as uh, a government to make sure that uh, those folks have the opportunity to be back at work and providing for themselves and their families. Um, and we need to help small businesses. The number of small businesses that have been devastated through no fault of their own. Uh, you know, we, uh, the entrepreneurship in small business, the job creation in small business is so important. And so we need to make sure that there's enough uh, uh, help from the federal government to get that part of our economy back in action. You know, one last question for you, uh, Secretary Pritzker, that kind of goes, takes you back to your role in the campaign. You were a liaison with business leaders, business groups, investing funds um, uh, about what sort of role and presidency a Biden uh, administration. Um, I'm curious, what was the main concern from the business community and what does uh, the president-elect have to do to keep that uh, group uh, on his team? Well, look, I think the business community really understands that the priorities of the Biden administration are spot on. I think that, you know, what what there needs to be good communication, good lines uh, of transparency as to where the agenda is going. I think that, uh, you know, the business community play, you know, the government sets the conditions for businesses to grow and thrive. And businesses, when they grow and thrive, make investments and hire more people. And we need more jobs in this country. We, as I said, we have 10 million more, 10 million people who are not uh, employed today, who were employed at the beginning of, 2000, or of 2020. And so I think it's really important that that line of communication is cooperative and collaborative. And there's no reason it shouldn't be. 
uh, and that there are strong uh, lines of communication about the agenda uh, and how it will impact business uh, in a way that is uh, constructive for both business and the American worker. And I think that is possible in a Biden administration. Uh, thank you, Secretary. Pritzker, thank you. You've been generous with your time uh, and helpful with your comments. I appreciate you spending time with, with us today. Well, Mike, thanks so much, and it's great to see you again. Same with me. Talk soon. Thank you. We um, uh, turn now to national defense. Uh, joining us uh, is former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, um, who uh, ran the Pentagon and uh, before that was a United States Senator. Thank you for joining us today, Sec Secretary Hagel. Yes, sir. Nice to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to have you. You uh, co-signed uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, uh, earlier this week, just a few days ago, um, that was joined by the 10 living former uh, defense chiefs, um, which cautioned against any military involvement in the transition from one administration to another. I just want to quote one key line in which that op-ed said that uh, military officials must, quote, that undermine the results of the election or hinder the success of the new team. Uh, what made uh, the 10 of you uh, think this op-ed was necessary? Uh, well, thanks, sir. Um, give me a couple of minutes. Uh, I think we all um, realized that it was important that we make a statement as a group uh, for, this, for this reason, especially the last 30 days, but even before that, there's been a lot of uh, loose, I think, erratic, dangerous talk about uh, using the Insurrection Act, um, declaring military law uh, to change the election, to do other things. And the President Trump's continued comments and tweets about the election was fraudulent, it, it needs to be overturned, uh, threats about using the military, as we saw. Uh, he did use the military this summer, um, and uh, it, it just led us all to, to seriously review this because the constitutional responsibilities um, of our government, of our people, of those in charge who take an oath of office is, is, is to the Constitution, not to a president, not to a party. And we wanted to kind of reinforce what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, has said about not misusing the military and just also uh, let the citizens of this country know that uh, all 10 of us from various backgrounds, political philosophies, work for Democrats, work for Republicans, we all agree on this. So I think when you add all that up, the, the environment probably dictated it uh, and we all thought it was the appropriate thing to do. You know, we talk about the military in, in great big terms, you know, it, but it has many pieces, many parts. There are um, uh, enlisted uh, and uh, enlisted personnel and officers in the ranks, but there are civilians at the top. Was this op-ed aimed at civilians or at people in uniform? Well, it was aimed at uh, all of our uh, professional military as well as the um, appointed uh, officials, the civilians. Uh, who were in charge uh, of all our agencies in, of government. Is, uh, and of course, the Pentagon is no different. But it's a reminder, uh, if, in, if nothing else, 
of their sacred responsibilities, the peaceful transition of power. That's the cornerstone of democracy. We, we've always been able to do that with, without any issue. 1876 was probably the only other time when we've had a, a major a, a question, but uh, that dynamic of our, uh, of our democracy is so critical. And also this, um, we don't want the citizens of this country to lose confidence and trust in our institutions, in our processes, especially our elections. And if you've got a president and others who have been, as they have been doing the last 30 days, saying every day, uh, sometimes 10 times a day, that the election was flawed, it wasn't correct, uh, it wasn't wrong, it was stolen, I mean, it was wrong, it was stolen, then, then ha that has an effect on our democracy and uh, our citizens. Can they trust their institutions? Can they trust their leaders? And if, if you get to that point, in a country, in a democracy, we're in trouble. So I think we wanted to address that overall theme too. That, I, you've undersold it a little bit, um, Mr. Secretary. You know, it's those ten uh, former Pentagon, uh, those former secretaries of defense, don't get uh, together to do things very often. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this op-ed came about and whose idea it was? Well, it came about. Um, uh, first, uh, as uh, they approached me and they approached my my nine other uh, uh, Secretary of Defense colleagues, uh, by people who have been in the military, been in different administrations, who've been in the Pentagon, and uh, they came up with the idea. They first wrote a draft, then they went to uh, uh, some of us individually. Uh, I think uh, Vice President Cheney was one of the first that they went to because the, the people who uh, essentially took the first uh, cut at the draft and idea had worked with him and for him. So they went to him and he was, he's one of the, one of the senior uh, members of the, this uh, 10 member living fraternity. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, is there a, um, a, a, a I think most people would want to know, is there a realistic possibility that the military would ever act in this way that you are cautioning against? I have great confidence and trust in our military leadership, our professionalism of our military. Uh, uh, throughout my life, I've been involved with the military uh, since I was in Vietnam in 1968. And all the jobs I've had, things I've done, I've always been involved with veterans and military. And there is no question that they would not do the right thing. But I think they deserved, especially in, in the political environment that we have in the country today, that's so polarized, it's led to paralysis. I think they needed some support to, to do the right thing. Not that they wouldn't or they would question it. I, I believe they always will, and, and they would today. But the support that we could give, him, give them, uh, 10 former secretaries of defense, we thought was important. Um, is there a military role potentially in assuring a peaceful transfer of power? Um, would something like that ever be uh, possible? And would that be considered a defense of the Constitution as opposed to disrupting a transfer? What about assuring one? Yeah. Well, we've never had that issue. And everybody uh, that who has, has ever served, every former Secretary of Defense, I think every professional military person, uh, has said and, and believes, and it, it is the case, the military has no role in elections. It should stay out of elections, whether it's enforcing elections or in, in any way, stay out. We, we have 
the appropriate state people. The states and the locales are in charge of elections, not the federal government. And I think that's the way we want it. And uh, are there scenarios when the military might be used to protect the Constitution, bring the Constitution into clear focus and, and support that Constitution with transition of power? I mean, I don't know, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, we have police, we have other authorities um, that can do that. I think once you allow the military to be involved in political decisions, and, and this is a political decision, the transfer of power, because it, it came about uh, in an election. The people of this country voted, the citizens voted, made their decisions, they elected new leaders, and it was a political decision. That's not the role of the United States military. The role of the military in this country is the defense of this country from outside enemies. And uh, I think we always want to keep it that way. Uh, you are a former uh, Republican senator. Uh, today, 13 of your colleagues, joined by 100 House Republicans, uh, are planning to object to certifying the Electoral College results from the 50 states, some of them anyway. Um, uh, what is your current view of the state of the Republican Party? Well, I'm a Republican. I, I am probably a Republican in name only. I don't know what the Republican Party stands for anymore. Uh, it's been the Trump Party. It's not the party that I joined a uh, long, long time ago and served in the Senate as a Republican senator. Uh, but I think the state of the Republican Party is a mess today. Uh, now, it appears that they're going to lose uh, both seats in Georgia. Um, they're going to have to go through a, an internal review process that's going to be pretty significant. Where do they go from here? What is, does our party stand for? What do we believe? Are we inclusive? It used to be uh, the Republican Party had about five major principles. It, it, was, a, it was a party with a big tent. Uh, but you stood for fiscal responsibility. Um, free trade, international engagement, strong national defense and security and so on. They've lost so much of that today. So they're gonna have to go through a, an internal review process and some significant soul searching to sort it out. And there's gonna be new, there will be new leaders. Uh, President Trump is gone uh, already. There are probably a half a dozen Republicans in the Senate who say they would like to be the Republican nominee in 2024. You've got an election even before that, um, a, an important midterm in 2022. Uh, you've got some of President Trump's former cabinet members, current cabinet members, who have said they're interested in being president. So this is going to be a very interesting time for the party, and I, and I think also for the Democratic Party, uh, as they as they work through their issues. But for the Republican Party, uh, they're in a mess today, and it'll take some time to sort out. You've also noticed, I'm sure, being a former uh, centrist Republican in the Senate, the emergence of a, uh, a small block of senators, uh, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney, of course, uh, trying to uh, be something of a bridge between the two sides. How hard is it to be a, in uh, the U.S., a centrist Republican in the U.S. Senate today? Well, in my last few years when I was in the Senate, uh, I, I could see this coming. I mean, this just didn't start with Trump. I mean, uh, Trump was not the cause of this. He, he was a consequence. And uh, it was coming back when I, my last years in the Senate, of being this 
uh, almost absolutist party that you've absolutely got to vote for the party line on every issue. Uh, uh, that That's not right. I mean, when you're elected, people elect you for many reasons. But one of the reasons they elect you is they have some confidence in your judgment. Your judgment is very, very critical to doing the job. And so I think as we work our way through this, and the Republicans have to uh, look at and the Democrats, too, by the way, I don't think it's a one party problem here. I think it's both parties. And I saw when I was in the Senate that they're going to have to come together and making this country work again, compromise, work it out. You have strong ideas and positions on both sides. That's OK. That's democracy. But in the end, you put the country first, you compromise, you, you do things like pass budgets every year. We haven't passed a budget in years, we live on continuing resolutions. When I got to the Senate, budget, you just passed the budget because it was your job. You didn't give yourself a parade for it. We passed appropriations hmm. bills. We made the government work. We compromised. Uh, but you can't run a democracy based on a one-party absolute system uh, because if, if that's where you want to go, then that's basically leads to an authoritarian government. You need both parties contributing, compromising, making it work so that you don't get locked in paralysis of governing this country uh, as we have been in the last couple of years. Uh, let's take a minute and talk about budgets and the military. For the last 10, 15, we've, for 10 years at least, we've spent uh, nearly $800 billion a year on the military. Um, that's a significant increase uh, over the last 30 years. I'm wondering, uh, what do you think the Biden administration uh, will mean for defense budgets and uh, the military posture in general? Well, uh, what the Biden administration will do, I'm sure, is take a, a very uh, careful look at the budget, uh, what the budget is now, uh, where it's come from over the last four years, uh, and then what's most important, projecting out. What always in deciding a Pentagon budget for your national security, you ask this question first. Uh, what does the country need? What do we need to secure this country, the defense of this country? That is where you start. And then you back it down from there. Is it 740 billion? Is it 700 billion, 800 billion? You figure, you figure that out. But I think Biden's people will take a careful look at this budget. Uh, is it required? Is it necessary? Where is the money going? Where are the appropriations going? Are they going to the right places for the, the, the threats that we foresee, certainly as we plan for the next five years and 10 years? Because the Pentagon operates on, on long-term commitments and budgets. That's the way you have to do when you order uh, platforms for the Air Force and the Navy for new planes, new ships. And so you, you've got to have forward thinking on this. And I think that's where they'll start. That's where they should start. Uh, and I don't know if, if 740 billion, the current budget now, is, is the right budget? Is it too small? Is it too large? I, I doubt if, if we're going to have a larger budget, but I don't know that. I just add one thing. Five days after I got uh, to the Pentagon as Secretary of Defense in, in early February of 2013, uh, sequestration hit. Uh, the Pentagon was already taking a $50 billion a year cut as a result of the 2011 budget agreement between President Obama and the Congress. Then sequestration hits. We take another $50 billion that had not been accounted for or planned for. And we were having to take 
that in addition to the 50 billion that had been accounted for that we planned for. And so it was a pretty, pretty rough time because you, you can't just bob those budgets up and down 50 billion cut or $50 billion, $100 billion one way or the other in a short period of time. The planning that goes into every dollar in those budgets is, is critically important. So that's where I'm sure the Biden administration will start. And let me ask you one more thing about the job of uh, Defense Secretary. Uh, President Biden has, uh, President-elect Biden has nominated Lloyd Austin, a former general uh, under federal law. You have to have some space, seven years, I think it is, between the time you serve in uniform and you take a top civilian job in the military. Do you have a position on, some Democrats have said they don't want uh, uh, someone so close, uh, uh, such a recent flag officer uh, to be uh, there on the E-ring. What, what that, and or can you tell us what kind of signal you think um, a man like Lloyd Austin sends both to the troop and the nation? Well, first, uh, Lloyd Austin. Uh, I worked very closely with him at the Pentagon and uh, not a finer officer of professional military than Lloyd Austin. His character, his integrity, his professionalism, everything about him. Is, is just first first rate. Now, the bigger issue of uh, of a retired, recently retired flag officer in charge of the Pentagon, uh, I've never thought that was a good idea. I'm gonna support Lloyd Austin because I, I think we can't play around with this. Biden's gotta have a secretary of defense. He's made a decision. And unless something comes up in, in Austin's background that uh, would uh, not allow the the committee and the, the Senate to go forward with him, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, but, but I'm going to support him. But I don't think generally it's, it's, it's a good idea to do that. I mean, the job of Secretary of Defense is an immense job with immense responsibilities, and, and it's very much a political job. Uh, you don't have to be the smartest person uh, in the Pentagon to know the most about the Pentagon. You'll, uh, you'll, never, you'll never be that. It's just too big and complicated. The Secretary of Defense has 950 flag officers to call upon. You've got military professionals that have put their whole lives into this business, 30, 40 years. So you, you need a Secretary of Defense that's got some ability to navigate the political waters in Washington, which are very rough, I don't have to tell you. In, in the Pentagon, they're rough too, because you're, you're navigating in the waters of the Congress, Every member of the House and Senate has an idea about the Defense Department, Armed Services Committees, Appropriations Committees, different parties. You're navigating it within the White House waters. Every president has wanted uh, to, to take more and more control uh, of, the, of the Pentagon. Bob Gates wrote about it. Leon Panetta wrote about it. So you're navigating that. You're navigating within the building the, the strength of each of the services uh, that, that are very significant. The career foreign service, I mean, I mean military service in the Defense Department. Uh, you're, you're having to make all that work, plus the press, the media. The media is very important here because the media needs to know. Uh, the media can't know everything, obviously, but you've got you've to let the media know a lot. And so when you take just those factors that I've mentioned, that the Secretary of Defense has to deal with all of that, as well as manage the Pentagon, and our interests around the world, secure our defenses. Uh, I, I think that that outside the flag officer 
family, that that's, that's, that's where our secretaries of defense should come from. But that's just my idea. I'll support Lloyd Austin. He's a good man. I think he'll do a good job. Would you, if you could give Lloyd Austin one piece of advice as a former Secretary of Defense, uh, what would it be? Well, uh, I would say you, you, you listen carefully, everyone, and peripheral vision. Uh, you need peripheral vision. You need to know uh, as much as you can what's going on around you. And what you can know uh, is, is what's going on behind you. It isn't all just what's in front. Let's take the hill. Yeah, that's important accomplish the mission, but you better know what's going on all the way around you because sharks are, are swimming around you. And that, that, that's not a, a, a negative thing. I mean, that's just the business that we're in. But that, that's be my advice to Lloyd or any, any, uh, any future Secretary of Defense. Thank you for that, Secretary Hegel. That's all the time we have. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern, my colleague David Ignatius will speak to Palantir Tech CEO Alexander Karp. His company is closely is involved is involved with many governments both overseas and here at home in tracking the COVID and its spread around the world. So please join us for that conversation. Meantime, I'm Michael Duffy, and thank you again for joining us here at Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.